Wow, what a year it has been so far. You join me as I hide away indoors on a rain-lashed afternoon in rural Devon for this, the first episode of this new series that will see us continue to explore the world of brewing and beer. So far, it's been a year that hasn't quite gone to plan, and I suspect you can probably guess why, but what matters is that we're here again and there are adventures in beer to be had. My name is Ben Richards and this is Series 2 of Growing Beer. Hello and welcome to Growing Beer, or if you were with me for the previous series, welcome back. Can you believe it's been three years since that first series? Now, I'm not sure if it's this year that's to blame, but it all feels like a very, very long time ago. Not that that is a problem, it's great to be back again and embarking on another journey. So what is happening in this series, I hear you ask? Well, this year I'm doing things a little differently. I'm going to be finding my beer as well as growing it. You see, throughout the first series, I was increasingly aware that everything I was doing was using modern processes and techniques. I may have been growing the ingredients myself, but everything else was very 21st century. So, this time, we're going to really go back to basics. We're going to find out what it would have been like were we normal people trying to make our beer hundreds or thousands of years ago. Gone are the electric dehydrators, specialist micro-maltings and internationally renowned laboratories. We're going all the way back to the earliest brewers and discovering what we would have been able to gather or forage locally, what I could grow, and what techniques would have been available. I'm still going to find out how to do this from those that know a lot more than me, as I am no historian. So each of these upcoming episodes will feature a range of experts, including writers, archaeologists, brewers and botanists, to help guide us through both time and beer. I'm also being helped by the Brewers Research and Education Fund to make this overall podcast a reality. A grant-awarding body that directly supports research and education into beer and brewing, I am not exaggerating at all when I say that without them, I simply wouldn't have been able to put this together at all. So, as well as a massive thank you to them, I'd also recommend that if you work in the research or education of the brewing industry, take a look to see if what you're doing could be supported by them. Now, as with everything I mention on this series, the links to find out more are available on my website, beerwithben.co.uk. There, you'll find further information on everybody who has helped me along the way, photos and content about what we've discovered, and links to the social media pages, should that be your thing. Now that you know what the challenge is for this year, it's time to briefly address the elephant in the room, coronavirus. Last series, we started together in early January, and we followed the twists and turns of each month, both unaware of what the next episode would involve. Now, whilst many things have remained the same for this year, for example, I'm still sat here in the same part of Devon, and I'm sure I'll be coming to you from Richard the Shed at some point, COVID-19 has thrown a massive virus-shaped spanner in the works. Obviously, I sincerely hope that you and your loved ones are well as you listen right now. It's impacted on many lives and jobs, not least those in the beer and pub industry. For my part, it's meant that I've had to make a few changes to the format of this year's project. Rather than recording and releasing the episodes over the course of the year as I had planned, I'll be putting them out every two weeks from now until December. I'll also be uploading all of the photos of the year to match the release of the episodes. Again, I was planning to do this as it happened, but when you consider the challenges many of us were facing around the start of lockdown, it just didn't seem right to start chattering on about what I've been up to when the entire world is grinding to a halt. 
people were, and still are, facing serious problems. And whether I can brew like an historic peasant or not didn't really feel like a priority six months ago. The current situation has also affected who I've been able to speak with and turn to for help. I'm extremely grateful, as ever, to the experts who have helped me out this time around, but I'd also like to say a thank you to those who would have liked to be involved, but weren't able to this year. It's certainly been challenging, with a mixture of cancelled, delayed or remote interviews, but what it has done is give my initial hope to brew like my historical counterparts a genuine relevance. In much the same way that they couldn't depend on a global network of growers, producers and online shops in which to order practically any ingredient they needed and see it delivered within days, I can't either. Lockdowns have seen global supply chains completely stop, and I'm not quite as dependent on local food production as, as say, they would have been centuries ago, but communities and local suppliers are much, much more important than they were just six months ago. I have, at times, literally had no choice but to brew like a Neolithic farmer. Anyway, we're here now, and it's time to crack on. We're going to go on a journey, explore our early brewing heritage, see what we can find in the countryside around me, and recreate some drinks on the way. At the start of this voyage, I didn't really know what to expect, exactly what I should be making, or even how those first British brewers would have gone about the task. So, we need an expert, methinks, and who better than one of the most respected researchers and writers on historical brewing, Martin Cornell. Journalist, historian, author of several books including Amber, Golden Black, Strange Tales of Ale and The Story of the Pint, as well as former beer writer of the year. If anybody can give me a brief history as to how we started, he can. Being at the start of the project, I spoke to Martin just before we all became aware of what Covid was. So, and this seems like such a long time ago now, it was on a crisp, if slightly cold afternoon, I headed up to London to catch up over a pint. I began by asking him to start right at the beginning. What are the origins of our brewing? So I'm sat on the, well, it's the side of the Thames, isn't it? Outside the Anchor um, here in London with uh, Martin Cornell. Hello there. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, delighted. Should we start right from the very beginning? Um, and what, what is the origin or were the origins of, of beer as we know it? Well, beer uh, started once um, people had somehow, and we still don't know exactly how, discovered that uh, if you let grain grow, then it turns into something sweet and tasty and if you soak that in water and yeast lands in it then the yeast will eat the sugars and turn it into alcohol now this was discovered uh, in the Middle East probably 10,000 years ago 8 to 10,000 years ago uh, when people were gathering wild grain and nobody knows exactly how it happened but eventually people settled down they stopped gathering the wild grain and started growing the grain in cultivated fields next to where they had settled and they were turning at least some of that grain into malt from which they were then making beer so that was the Middle East uh, and then after that uh, they spread out the early farmers across Europe taking couple of thousand years before they finally reached the, the shores of Britain bringing with them grain grain cultivation and almost certainly the knowledge of how to make ale and beer looking uh, at, at me in Devon as a I'm guessing a peasant of some kind back at that time as the beer first arrives on these shores what would I have been drinking up until that point 
Well, before that, you if you were drinking anything at all, uh, you would possibly have been drinking mead made from honey that you've managed to, to gather from, from bees uh, around you. You might perhaps uh, have been drinking some kind of cider made from crab apples, but there's no real uh, evidence of that. And possibly um, you were able to ferment a few wild fruits, but again, we don't have any evidence of that, and, and, and not that easy to, to ferment anyway. So uh, it may well be that you weren't really getting uh, drunk at all. You had to wait for the farmers to turn up and show you how to make ale. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, isn't oh, it? Terrible, terrible. <laughs> so that early um, ale, I'm guessing then, yeah. Um, what would that have been like and how, how would I have been making that and, and in what circumstances would I have been consuming it, if at all? Well, it would have been unhops. Uh, I think that's the most important uh, point to stress here because people um, hadn't yet discovered uh, the effect that hops have on beer, which, which we'll, we'll come to later on. And it may well be that they weren't really necessarily flavouring it with anything at all. They were just uh, getting their grain turning it into malt, that is to say soaking it, uh, letting it start to grow and then stopping the growth by heating it over a fire uh, or some other way, uh, grinding that up, uh, mashing it with water, running the uh, sweet wort off and then either letting wild yeast get to it or adding yeast somehow. We, we don't know exactly what sort of techniques they were using, but looking at some of the techniques um, that are still used by, by farmer brewers in other countries, you know, uh, some farmers collected the ye- would have been collecting the yeast um, that had appeared on the, on the beer and, and saving it somehow on a stick or something else like that. And then that, that ale that they made would have been uh, either their everyday drink uh, or something that they, they kept for special occasions. Uh, again, we don't really have any evidence one way or the other, but um, certainly later on, uh, ale had become uh, an everyday drink for, for many people. It's a myth, by the way, can I just say here, um, that they were making ale because the water uh, wasn't good enough quality. The water in this country has always, almost always been perfectly fine to drink. And certainly, you know, most farms would have been set up near a spring, spring or a well or a river where they would have got perfectly okay water. The reason why people drank ale was because they liked it. And they, <laughs> it was tasty and they liked the effect it they that it had on them when they drank it. Which is the same effect now. Which is a very similar effect now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I may not have been drinking that early beer when it reached, it reached the sunny climes of Devon uh, all the time, as we'd, we'd assume they might do, or we do now. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, again, we don't really have uh, too much evidence. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work needed to produce... Uh, ale as a, a lot of gathering of uh, grain of grinding and remember they would only have had uh, hand grinders they wouldn't have had water mills or anything like that so it took a lot of effort to produce your pint in your clay mug eventually yeah so as we move through um, time and we've uh, had the arrival of the I guess the first ale um, making and, and consumption how does that change as, as time goes on? Are there any particular periods or groups of people that, that certain uh, drinks are linked to or, or varieties of, of ale? Yeah, well, we know that uh, the Celts uh, were certainly ale drinkers uh, and they were drinking um, sort of commonly three different uh, grades of alcoholic drink. They, they were drinking mead, uh, they were drinking ordinary 
uh, ale made from grain and they were drinking a, a mixture of the two which was known as braggart uh, and so we can we know that that was happening in Wales we can be pretty certain that it was happening in uh, the West Country as well while that, well, that was still uh, heavily Celtic influence or occupied by Celtic peoples uh, and of course along came the Anglo-Saxons and they were great uh, ale drinkers they had their beer halls um, they loved getting riotously drunk, <laughs> uh, and so so. But this was still, you know, in the in the unhopped era. Uh, this was and this was still uh, a drink that would largely have been made by uh, women at this time. And I say largely, probably almost entirely, apart from uh, in religious settlements where they were having to make um, large quantities of, of ale for the uh, the monks and the and the um, sort of civilians that that worked alongside the monks who frequently get forgotten about um, then it probably would have been male brewers uh, apart from that all the brewing would have been done by female brewsters um, mostly for the home occasionally obviously for um, visitors or they would they would um, put up outside their house the uh, the famous uh, green bush to show that they had ale on on sale which is a very similar thing that still happens in in uh, germany in franconia the zeugel beers uh where people brew in their home uh occasionally and put up a sign outside saying we've got ale on come and come and buy it of us and i'm sure that's exactly the same kind of thing that was going on uh in the in the anglo-saxon and and probably early norman periods as well okay and what was their awareness of all of the ingredients they were using? Because uh, in, in see, current times, we know an awful lot about the water, about the grain, um, now the hops, of course, but also the yeast. What was their awareness of, of how the process was working and, and, and what was happening? Well, I think they, uh, they did know that yeast was something that was associated with uh, making ale. And uh, they, one of the, the names for it was God is Good. Uh, they knew that this was a God's good God's gift. Uh, they knew that this was something that was essential for doing it, for for making a brew with the effects that you were, <laughs> you were seeking. Um, they didn't know too much about why uh, the, the ales they had went off uh, and what they could do about preventing that. Un- really, until um, the arrival of hops from the continent. Um, so, and they they didn't know necessarily um, exactly what magic was that, that the yeast was doing but they they knew from literally centuries of uh, trial and error uh, and refining the techniques they knew how to make good tasty drink there's a there's a, a myth um, that it must all have been sour and horrible tasting no way they, they were no different from us they they were after something that was enjoyable and tasty they would have known how to make it they'd had to uh hand it on down through the centuries to techniques to be able to make decent drink and I'm sure that's exactly what they were doing even if they didn't know why those techniques worked. And speaking of those techniques do you think there are things that we have forgotten were going on or skipped over um, particular approaches to processing those ingredients and using them that we've just assumed that people are, are brewing in the modern style and always have done? Yeah I think that um, one of the things that it's been a surprise to people to realise is that uh, brewers in uh, in the pre-hop era did not boil their their wort. The the uh, sweet liquid today is boiled with hops. 
there was no need to boil uh, boil the wort. It, you, you just had to make sure that you got it to a temperature where um, the uh, enzymes in, in the grain would convert the starches into sugars, which is around about 70 centigrade, something like that. So they were producing what were, what were technically called raw ales, unboiled ales. So that was one thing that I think was very, very different. Um, from today's techniques. The other technique, particularly down in, in the West Country, is that uh, it was a long tradition through till the, uh, towards the end of the 19th century uh, of something called white ale, uh, which involved using um, eggs and flour. And nobody is really entirely certain uh, what this stuff was. There's, there's plenty of records about it, uh, but nobody's uh, entirely certain what was going on with making this stuff and, and why uh, these particular techniques were, techniques were used. And we still need to, I think, probably do more research and more experimentation, which hopefully yeah. you'll be able to do. Well, it sounds like an idea. I mean, if they were doing it for centuries, yeah. it must have worked. It yeah. must have been good and worth drinking. Yeah. Well, it's certainly uh, first recorded in 1540-odd. Uh, um, there was a, a uh, guy... Um, who described the, the uh, ale of Cornwall as white and looking as if pigs had wrestled in it. <laughs> uh, and uh, so this is clearly a reference to, to white ale. And you get, you get uh, then continuing references through until it finally seems to die out around about 1870. So uh, it's obviously a very old style of beer, probably related um, to the kind of wheat ales of, uh, of Belgium or something like that. That's my guess. Yeah. Uh, and and something that you know was never became commercial. It was always seems to have been um, just a, a household brew and vanished completely. Sadly. Yeah. Well, you speak there of flour and eggs. Were there other ingredients that were being used um, for flavouring or to, to adapt the beer, the ale, sorry, in some way? Yeah, I think people would always have um, experimented with flavouring. Their, their ales with whatever was handy, whatever was growing in the local hedgerow or in the local uh, wood or whatever. Um, or in your, in your back garden, you would be tempted to uh, stick it in and, uh, your ale and see what it tasted like. Not necessarily. I think I, I feel fairly certain that uh, some ales were drunk unflavoured. And, and you know, if you were making it with a with a, a smoky malt, which they probably would have been because they, they would only been drying these malts over uh, wood fires and you're inevitably going to end up with a, a smoky flavour um, you can make a very lovely ale with no other ingredients than, than just smoky malt uh, water and yeast uh, on the other hand you can get some great flavours from using things like uh, ground ivy um, wormwood which grows wild um, all sorts of things uh, growing around the countryside uh, carrot seed for example apparently mm. gives a lovely peach flavour oh, to, wow. to your ale um, literally dozens of different uh, herbs growing wild in the countryside have been used in ale and uh, you know often to um, great effect and then when we start to you mentioned hops several times uh, what impact does the arrival of hops have on brewing um, in, in this country as, we, as it was then well, it had a big impact, although it took much longer, I think, than, than people have uh, previously thought. The, the first um, brewers of hops were uh, people, emigrants from uh, the Low Countries. Uh, they were coming over uh, in the later part of the uh, 15th century, bringing this, uh, this 
use of hops to flavor beer with them and the thing about hops is that if you boil hops for enough a long enough period uh, and so various uh, changes take place and and you end up with a lovely bitter flavor but you also get a, a disinfectant uh, effect so that those kind of uh, organisms that would long to turn your your beer sour are kept at bay by the uh, ingredients in the hops uh, it took a long time um, to, to discover this because uh, you do have to boil the hops for quite some time and there was no reason why anybody would want to boil the hops for a long, long time somebody did it one day and discovered uh, that if you did that then your beer would last much much longer than if you if you didn't if it was if you left it alone once this happened uh, once people discovered that you could now have a, a, a drink that instead of going off and going sour and going vinegary um, within weeks would actually last months, you now had a, a commodity that could be sold, that could be exported, that could be stored, uh, and uh, suddenly you, you turned from what had been uh, just a domestic industry into a, a proper uh, industrial process. This happened in uh, northern Europe to begin with. It spread down to the Low Countries and eventually uh, in the late 15th century crossed, came across to England. There was then about one or two hundred years of struggle between native English unhopped ale and this nasty foreign invention, <laughs> hopped beer. And there was a lot of anti- uh, immigrant <laughs> prejudice against the arrival of this foul, bitter, hoppy stuff. Um, but one of the things that helped hops, uh, hopped beer survive was that the, uh, the government, the authorities, quickly discovered uh, that they now had something that they could supply troops with, they could supply the navy with, and unlike ale, it would not go off quickly, it would last a long time. So that helped spread uh, hopped beer. It gained a fairly rapid market in London, although even in uh, Elizabethan times, probably about a third of all the alcoholic uh, grain drink-based drink uh, was still ale uh, rather than hopped beer. Um, it spread, it didn't really take over the north uh, of England until probably the, the start of the 17th century. Um, and you still had places standing out against the, the arrival of hops. Uh, the West Country, I'm, I'm not too sure about, but I suspect that um, the fact that obviously you had a, um, plenty of sailors, sailors would have appreciated the fact that hopped beer kept on board the ship much better than unhopped ale did. And I, I suspect that it was, it was through uh, the Navy, through sailors taking uh, hopped beer on, on board their ships um, that... that hopped beer uh, rapidly overcame any prejudice there might have been against uh, something something coming from from abroad from yeah. Europe and that would have trickled through to my little village or town in, in, in Devon and, and, and displaced ale fairly not quickly but yeah eventually yeah. Uh, over over a couple of hundred years gradually uh, you start finding people still referring to ale uh, as a less hopped drink than beer so for a long time, through until the 19th century, there was still the difference between ale and beer, but it was that one had still had hops in, but fewer hops than, than beer had in it. And then that takes us up to the modern brewing era, yes. doesn't it, really? Yes. Yeah, I mean, what had happened was that uh, as soon as it became uh, possible to turn brewing into an industry rather than a domestic 
process was that I'm afraid men muscled in on it push the women out it had all been Brewster's female brewers before then uh, and now the brewers took over uh, and started making money out of it well that is a very nice succinct <laughs> history of British beer <laughs> thank you very much that's alright that's uh, given me plenty of food for thought I think to what ales would have been made by my yep. equivalents to the centuries and well, I guess thousands of years ago not just hundreds yeah, yeah. Um, and gives me quite a nice place to start thinking about what I should be aiming for yeah Thank you very much for your time, Martin. That's okay. That's been my pleasure. <laughs> I could talk about beer for hours, as you possibly noticed. <laughs> Cheers. So, there it is. A very brief history of British beer. And huge thanks to Martin for his help and advice. It goes without saying that if you want to find out more, either about Martin or about the history of British beer, then check out his books or his blog. There's a link to the episode page on my website. Now, the really interesting bit for me was how we may not have been drinking anything alcoholic before beer came along. I don't know why, but I had it in my head that for as long as there had been people, there had been alcohol. It does make sense, though. Without sugar and fruit that offers enough of it, you can't have booze. And in our climate, the fruits that we would have had don't really produce a lot of sugar. As far as I know, and I could be wrong on this, as I, as I am on many things, as far as I know, grapes, apples, pears, peaches... All of that sweet stuff was brought over by different explorers or conquering nations. The only consistent sugar source that would have been used for brewing or making fermented drinks would have been honey. Now, thanks to that chat with Martin and his books, I'm feeling confident that I've got three challenges ahead of me to brew like the historical peasant I would have been. And if I'm honest, I think I would have been a peasant. I know people like to assume that they would have some grand or important lineage, much like they'd assume that they would be one of the survivors come the zombie apocalypse, but I'm fairly sure I'd be a peasant. I'd be doing my best to get by, but certainly not in charge. Anyway, those challenges. Over the next five episodes, I need to find out how I would have got hold of those ingredients, how they would have been processed and brewed, and importantly, how differently things would have been before the modern era. I'll be needing a sugar sauce, herbs or plants for flavour, bittering, and maybe preservation, some water, and then a source of yeast or fermentation. I suspect there'll be some growing involved, and I'm also going to try and forage from the local countryside and trade with those living near to me, just like peasant Ben would have done as he found himself living in a small rural community like mine. That is enough talk from me, though. It's time to get moving. I've got an ale to make, and, like last time, if I don't get this right, I'll have nothing to drink come Christmas and the end of the year. It is with this in mind that I've decided to find out more about those earliest sources of sugars, grains and honey. Over the next two episodes, I'll find out how those earliest of brewers did the job all those thousands of years ago, what they had to go through to make their ale, and how honey has and can be used to make mead and braggart. All of which brings us nicely to the end of this first episode. If you've enjoyed it, please give me a rating from wherever you download or stream, say hi on social media, or tell a friend. This podcast is completely free, and it really helps to share it and let others know if you've enjoyed it. Now, if you're interested in what I've been up to in between the podcasts, I'll also be putting out all of the photos and updates that I've been storing up over the past few months so that you can see what the process and the challenges involve. Just follow the links from the Beer With Ben website, which is beerwithben.co.uk. And, of course, join me next time as I delve into the world of bees, honey and mead, try to get my head around the implications and complications of interviews during lockdown and start to wonder about how we would cope, let alone brew, without the internet-fueled global supply chains we all take for granted. What started off as a challenge about optional self-sufficiency has, for this year at least, become a lot less optional. Look after yourself. 
I'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>